From the Restoration Archives, this is Light and Truth. This lecture by Denver Snuffer, entitled Constitutional Apostasy, was originally recorded in Highland, Utah on June 7, 2013, in front of a live audience. I was um, mistaken when I was originally um, asked to speak um, on two scores. First of all, um, we exchanged emails about doing this, and the date was uh, June the 6th, which is D-Day. And I was, uh, I was willing to come give a talk on D-Day, but that was yesterday. And as things rolled forward, it turned out that Friday wasn't the 6th. But that was still okay, and it was still close enough because the, um, the championship uh, final game was scheduled for the 3rd through the 6th. But that got changed. And so right now, um, my 12-year-old uh, daughter, because when you're 12 and under, you can still play baseball, whether you're a boy or a girl, my 12-year-old daughter is playing in the championship game for the season league ending game. And so my wife's not here with me, but she's keeping me updated. Um, on her second at bat, uh, two balls, followed by uh, a ball in the zone, and she hit a double to RBI one and tie the game up. She's, um, she's a 12-year-old girl. <coughs> and the only girl playing in the boys' baseball league, and she has the highest batting average in the league. <laughs> in fact, her, her, coach, her coach remarked to, to her that she's hitting nearly 800 on, on the entire season, which is hard to do. I don't care what league you're in. It's just hard to do. Um, it's hard to hit 800 off a tee. But the, the reason why I was willing to talk on um, yesterday has to do with what my father was doing on the morning of June 6th, uh, 69 years ago yesterday. <laughs> he was um, one of the few that got through the morning. He was on... Um, Omaha Beach. Well, <clears throat> the, the topic, I think we exchanged email, and I don't know that, that he, um, he told you what title I suggested we use for this, but um, uh, it was something about, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, here's the topic, constitutional apostasy, how our original Inspired Constitution has become compromised by the neglect, ambition, and ignorance of those who inherited a divinely inspired original pattern, um, which is pretty much what I want to talk about, or what I intend to talk about. Sometimes um, the way that you accomplish an objective is uh, indirectly. You accomplish it as a byproduct. Um, 
you don't stare into the sun. You, you take advantage of what the sun has to offer indirectly because it'll damage you if you go um, staring at it. The, the clearest way to make it um, apparent is in our legal system. We have what's called uh, an adversarial system. The adversarial system has as its objective the byproduct of finding the truth. That's not what you aim at. The adversarial system has uh, an attorney who represents one side, and his objective is to tell you everything that is in favor of his side, and then to point out all of the weaknesses, all of the mistakes of the other side. And then the other side's attorney has the exact same goal. Neither one of them is trying to tell you the whole story. They are employed, they are trained, and they are prepared to give you everything that can be mustered in the evidence, in the proof, in the testimony to support one side. Then a third party is the decision maker. Whether that third party is a judge or a jury, the third party decision maker listens to what both sides have to say and they determine what is the truth. The truth is the byproduct of this adversarial system. The alternative to that is an inquisitorial system. And we do not have an inquisitorial system. Because if you're going to take directly the objective of accomplishing the truth, then under an inquisitorial system, as Torquemada demonstrated in the Iberian Peninsula during the Inquisition, uh, get out the branding irons, get out the rag. I mean, if we can get to the truth by an inquisitorial system, then why not use torture in furtherance of the objective of trying to accomplish the truth? And so truth is not the objective of the adversarial system that we use in the United States. Truth is the byproduct of the system we use because you get far more truth through an adversarial system than you ever obtain through an inquisitorial system because people will lie to avoid the um, problems imposed upon them as a uh, part of the Inquisition. Well, the objective of the Constitution is really simple. There are a whole lot of things that are a byproduct of this one objective, but the one objective of the Constitution is to end tyranny. And so everything within the system is designed in, in order to accomplish as its byproduct ending tyranny. Because if anyone knew what tyranny was, it was the colonialists who found it unbearable to live under the system of a foreign king ruling them and imposing taxes upon them disproportionately so that they, the colonialists, were required to pay more taxes so that those back in the home country didn't have to pay taxes on some things or paid far less tax 
because though they were all subjects of the same monarchy, the monarch elected not to treat them equally and to tax them evenly, but to choose some to be benefited through the tax system and to choose others to punish under the tax system. And so um, they found that um, the system was intolerable. The reason why we wind up with those kinds of excesses is because of human frailty. There's this interesting, this interesting um, incident that happens that we have preserved in the Doctrine and Covenants in which uh, Joseph Smith is uh, in the Liberty Jail and he's been there for about five months at the time of the writing of this um, letter, an excerpt of which is in DNC 121. And um, he is groaning under the oppression of the state government that has arrested him using the state militia, accused him of treason against the state and held him without trial uh, in a Missouri dungeon for five months uh, in conditions that were brutal. And in those circumstances, um, he writes, and the writing is inspired. We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. What's interesting about what we have in Doctrine and Covenants section 121 is that Joseph Smith is confined and oppressed by a government authority. And in the extremity of being subjected to imprisonment without due process by the government of Missouri, and Joseph complaining, because if you have the rest of the letter, which is in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, if you read the rest of the letter, what he's complaining about, what he's asking God for is to avenge the, um, the governmental oppression of him. And as the Lord often does. The purpose of putting Joseph through the oppression in a dungeon is to tell him something about priesthood. The Lord ignores, ignores, you know, lay waste to the government. Instead, he takes the occasion to say, okay, Joseph, now, now maybe you can understand something. Here's what I was hoping you would understand. <clears throat> Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are so set upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men that they do not learn this one lesson, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness, that they may be conferred upon us, it's true, but when we undertake to, to cover our sins or gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, 
Behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. The Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. See, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only you don't have any authority by virtue of that. You have authority by virtue of only persuasion. That's your tool, persuasion. And since that's not going to work, <laughs> the second tool is long-suffering. Because all you're armed with is persuasion. You can't say, I'm the authority, you need to do this. I'm the authority, the thinking has been done. If all I've got is persuasion, then I better be willing to be long-suffering because I'm not going to bring you on board to the truth anytime soon. And then gentleness. I don't care how frustrated you get. And meekness and love unfined, uh, unfeigned. By kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul. These are the tools. So Joseph is suffering from governmental oppression, complaining about the government, and the Lord says, good, now maybe you can understand the way the priesthood works because this crap you're going through, if you think it's bad when someone has a militia, oh, you just wait, Joseph as it rolls forward and people have possession of priestly office, you see what happens. We've been through that. It's called Catholicism. The Lord's focus, as is often the case, is not on the thing that Joseph was asking about, but it was about what the Lord wanted us to understand. And there are other reasons why the Constitution matters to Latter-day Saints. Doctrine and Covenants section 101 tells us um, and this this is really interesting section 101 verse 76 and again I say unto you those who have been scattered by their enemies it is my will that they should continue to importune for redress and redemption by the hands of those who are placed as rulers and are in authority over you see uh, the Lord didn't say, based upon the Missouri persecutions and the loutishness of Governor Boggs, dispatch um, Orrin Porter Rockwell and take the guy out. He says, those who are placed as rulers and are in authority over you. You know, the solution doesn't lie in the end of a barrel. Petition them and do it, 77, according to the laws and constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles. That's what the Constitution was designed to accomplish. And when the Lord says that it was established for just and holy purposes, we ought to be approaching constitutional issues with the same sense of the sacred as DNC 121 talks about respecting the rights of conscience and belief. So it's just and it is holy, the Constitution. 
that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the days of judgment. Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. So I want you to note that what we are told in Doctrine and Covenants section 101 in the revelation given to Joseph is that the constitution was established by the Lord's hand through men he raised up for that purpose to establish just and holy principles that will protect the rights of all men. What it does not say is that having raised those just and holy men up, that you have a guarantee that forever thereafter, you will have in a position of authority over you, running the government of the United States in perpetuity, just and holy men whom the Lord has raised up. He put it in place. He put it in operation. He turns it over to us. Then the question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with what you've been entrusted with? That's the question. The Lord did his part. Now it's up to us. The Constitution gets mentioned again, not in a revelation. 101 is a revelation. It gets mentioned in the uh, dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple in section 109. And uh, Joseph <clears throat> says in the prayer, Have mercy, O Lord, upon all the nations of the earth. Have mercy upon the rulers of our land. May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the constitution of our land by our fathers, be established forever. Well, <clears throat> we have a declaration of belief on how governments ought to behave. That's section 134. We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man, and he holds men accountable, and so on. We believe, oh, I like verse 2. We believe that no government can exist in peace except such laws are framed and held inviolate as will secure to each individual the free exercise of conscience, the right and control of property, and the protection of life. It's interesting that we have in um, 134 the reference to property. Um, uh, John Locke uh, talked in terms of life, liberty, and property. Um, in the Declaration, uh, it was reworded to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have to understand the Scottish Enlightenment and what happiness meant, because that was a very specific phrase. The word happiness doesn't mean um, I got an Xbox and I got a, a you know a, a noggin full of cocaine and I'm happy now. That's not it. Happiness had a highly specific meaning. It meant that. You were living your life in conformity with the will of God. They believed in natural law. Natural law meant that it was ordained by God. It was given to all men. And when you brought your life into harmony with natural law, with the will of God, then you became happy. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means life, liberty, and that you were living your life in conformity with the will of God, which would bring about happiness. Um, John Locke, cut to the quick, which was property. 
query where we would be even with the 16th Amendment if um, property were in there. Well, <clears throat> First Nephi 13, there's um, a series of verses in there that is just giving the prophetic foreshadowing, the foretelling of what was going to happen when the, um, when the Gentiles became the inheritors of this land. And um, beginning at verse 12, And I looked and I beheld a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by many waters. I beheld the Spirit of God, that it came down and wrought upon the man and he went forth upon the many waters, even unto the seed of my brethren who are in the promised land. There's your answer to the question of whether people got the Holy Ghost without laying on of hands at some point. I mean, Columbus was inspired by the, anyway. Came to pass, I beheld the Spirit of God that it wrought upon other Gentiles, and they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters. So <clears throat> it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just, Columbus, it was your own ancestors who were wrought upon by the Holy Ghost to come and occupy this land. Um, even though two of, uh, two of my ancestors were children in the Liverpool area uh, who accepted a free afternoon boat ride from a, a captain who was loading the boat up with children and then proceeded to sail from Liverpool to the United States, well, to the colonies, where he uh, sold the children off as indentured servants. And uh, one of those was a boy and another one was a girl who were sold to the same family as indentured servants. And they, when they worked their way through the indentured servitude and they were, were free, they married one another. And so I guess the spirit works directly on some and through uh, captains on, um, on others. Um, in any event, came to pass, I beheld many multitudes of the Gentiles upon the land of promise. I beheld the wrath of God. It was upon the seed of my brethren. They were scattered before the Gentiles and were smitten. Beheld the spirit of the Lord. It was upon the Gentiles. They did prosper and obtained the land for their inheritance. And I beheld that they were white and exceedingly fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. Which tells you that what he's, what he's talking about is the ones who were the designated inheritors match a specific description and fit within a certain ethnicity called Gentile. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity, did humble themselves before the Lord. And the power of the Lord was with them. I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle against them. I beheld that the power of God was with them, and also the wrath of God was upon all those that were gathered together against them to battle. And I beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations." Well, you'd have to know a lot about our early history to know just how very true that is. Um, sometimes you had to look into the Battle of New York and how uh, Washington managed to escape. And he was the last one to leave that morning. Uh, he wanted all of the troops withdrawn before he would leave and um, 
uh, enter the boat himself. And um, but for the intervening fog bank, uh, the American Revolution would have ended that day. Um, the hand of God was throughout it. In fact, uh, Washington talked about the hand of providence uh, ruling throughout. Then we have um, Jacob's teaching in Second uh, Nephi chapter 10. And um, Jacob, the one that Nephi uh, thought so much of as a teacher that he gave chapters of his own writing over to his brother, younger brother, Jacob. Jacob, teaching in chapter 10, beginning at verse 10, says, But behold, this land, said God, shall be a land of thine inheritance, and the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land. And this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles. And there shall be no kings upon the land who shall raise up unto the Gentiles. And I will fortify this land against all other nations. And he that fighteth against Zion shall perish, saith God. For he that raiseth up a king against me shall perish. For I, the Lord, the King of heaven, will be their king. And I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. Well, <clears throat> we all know the story of the Book of Mormon, how there were kings and how there were kingmen and how there were those. I mean, it doesn't mean that there will not be, at least temporarily, uh, those that manage in this land to establish temporary monarchies and, and oppress. It just means that the ultimate destiny of kingship on this land is failure. And therefore, um, there we are. So we now know what the, the background is, um, and we know that there is this effort to create um, systems to guard against tyranny that have as their byproduct the freedom of the people. And so we, we look at the Constitution and say, how exactly is it then that the Constitution managed to establish a framework inside of which it's possible to preserve freedom? Uh, Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says that um, all legislative powers granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Then Article 1, Section 3 tells us how the, the Senate operates. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote, okay? So the Senate of the United States consists of this group, two senators, and they are chosen by the legislature of the state. Now, you might say, well, um, we fixed that. Um, yeah, we kind of did. We don't have any problem with the idea that 
there are positions that are held within the United States which um, have extraordinary authority granted to them, but who are not elected by the people. Every United States federal judge is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Every sitting member of the United States Supreme Court is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. We don't elect federal judges. We elect men or women who choose. We elect men who choose. We've yet to get a woman. The inevitability of that, however, is certain. Um, we elect men, they choose, Senate confirms, and none of us sit back and say, wait a minute, we didn't get to vote. Uh, none of us question the authority of the dignity or the legitimacy of their power. And the Supreme Court becomes, of course, the court of last resort in the country. Somehow, however, when it comes to the legislature of the United States, when the United States Senate became a creature of the legislatures, rather than being elected directly by the people, we found it so intolerable that we amended the Constitution in order to provide for the direct election of United States senators. Well, when they were putting together the United States Constitution and they had a skeptical public, they published a series of articles, Madison and a few of his cohorts, anonymously in the Federalist Papers. And the Federalist Papers 62 and 63 explain the purpose behind the way in which the, um, the Senate was organized. This is just talking about the United States Senate in the mechanism that gets used to choose the United States Senate. It is recommended by the double advantage of favoring a select appointment and of giving to the state governments such an agency in the formation of the federal government as must secure the authority of the former. Secure the authority of the former, the state government and may form a convenient link between the two systems. The United States Senate was designed to be a link between, on the one hand, the state and the state authority, that is the state legislatures, and the federal government. Because the Senate was the creature that was uh, selected by, appointed by, chosen by the state legislatures and therefore answerable to them. The equality of representation in the Senate is another point, which being evidently the result of compromise between the opposite pretensions of the large and small states. Among independent and sovereign states, bound together by a simple league, the parties, however unequal in size, ought to have an equal share in the common councils. We're trying to protect the identity of the various states as 
independent, and sovereign. The equal vote allowed to each state is at once a constitutional recognition of the proportion of sovereignty remaining in the individual states and an instrument for preserving that residuary sovereignty to guard by every possible expedient against an improper consolidation of the states into one simple republic. It was never the objective to have the United States of America become correlated so that they're all singing the same hymn, preaching the same lesson every week in uniformity from sea to shining sea. That was never the intent. It was always the intent that there be independence and recognition of the sovereignty of each of the individual sovereign units who were entitled to elect their own representation and then have their representatives choose who the senator would be at the beck and call of the legislature to go back to Washington and to guard the rights of the state. It's a simple system. Think about it. Dividing the power is a salutary check on the government. It doubles the security to the people by requiring the concurrence of two distinct bodies in schemes of usurpation, whereby the ambition or corruption of one would otherwise be sufficient. This is a precaution founded on such clear principle and now so well understood in the United States that it would be more than superfluous to enlarge on it. I will barely remark that as the improbability of sinister combinations will be in proportion to the dissimilarity in the genius of the two bodies. It must be politic to distinguish them from each other by every circumstance, which will consist with a due harmony in all proper measures and with the genuine principles of Republican government. You see, here's the way that works. The way in which you choose the Congress, the, the uh, House of Representatives, is by direct election. And by direct election, you can be informed by all sorts of passion, prejudice, trends, stupidity, um, fads, all kinds of things can briefly inflame the passions of those people that are elected by the public directly. But the legislature, out of which the United States Senate grows, the legislature is a completely different kind of body. The legislature in the states only turns over so often. And the legislature is the ones that are holding the reins on the Senate. So when the senators go back there, the things they care about, the fashions of the day, the passions of the people are, are quieted, are mollified, are, are um, subdued 
to some extent because the Senate doesn't have that same problem with direct election as does the House of Representatives. And this is a wise purpose uh, because of the improbability of sinister combinations in proportion to the dissimilarity between the House and the Senate. Therefore, what you want is dissimilarity. What you want is for them to reckon from different gene pools altogether. What you want is the Senate to be something far different than the House of Representatives. You don't want them running around with, oh, campaign slogans and uh, uh, yard signs and, uh, well, in the early days, barrels of whiskey at the polling stations. Now, why are we trying to create such disparity between the two bodies? It's because at the time that the Constitution was being discussed, no small share of the present embarrassments of America is to be charged on the blunders of our government. And that these have produced from the head, been produced from the heads rather than the hearts of most of the authors of them. A good government implies two things. First, fidelity to the object of government, which is the happiness of the people. Secondly, a knowledge of the means by which the object can best be attained. The internal effects of mutable policy are still more calamitous. It poisons the blessings of liberty itself. It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read. <laughs> or so incoherent that they cannot be understood. If they be repealed or revised before they are promulgated or undergo such incessant changes that no man who knows what the law is today can guess what it will be tomorrow. Law is defined to be a rule of action, but how little, how can that be the rule which is little known and less fixed? Great injury results from an unstable government. The want of confidence in the public councils dampens every useful undertaking, the success and profit of which may depend on a continuance of the existing arrangements. What prudent merchant will hazard his fortunes in any new branch of commerce when he knows not but that his plans may be rendered unlawful before they be executed? What farmer or manufacturer will lay himself out for the encouragement given to any particular cultivation or establishment when he can have no assurance that his preparatory labors and advances will not render him a victim to an inconstant government. The United States Senate was designed to be chosen by the legislature in order to prevent the incessant changing of the law and to provide a stability by which the government could become predictable, its laws known change would not be rapid. There could not be an agenda 
I'm running on a platform. Here's my platform. I got me this here agenda. We are going to transform America. We are going to make us a new one. We're going to implement. And if we can't get implementation in the other way, then we're going to executive order our way through. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. I thought it said that the legislative power, all legislative power here and granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Okay, so that's Article 1. We don't get to the executive until we get to Article 3 or 2. Article 2 is the, so, hmm. Yeah, well, if you had the Senate doing its job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be faced with those issues. In the next um, circular of the um, Federalist uh, paper, the Federalist 63, still talking about the United States, says the people can never willfully betray their own interests, but they may possibly be betrayed by the representatives of the people. And the danger will be evidently greater where the whole legislative trust is lodged in the hands of one body of men rather than when con the concurrence of separate and dissimilar bodies is required in every public act. The purpose was not merely to make them separately elected and to divide them into two terms, one for two and one for six years. It was to make them dissimilar the creature that is called the United States Senate and the creature that is called the House of Representatives was designed on purpose to be dissimilar. And so anything you do to break down the dissimilarity and anything you do to create the similarity between the two bodies is designed to undermine the very purpose that the system that was established was designed to guard against. Well, they talk about how you can transform and um, corrupt our country. But in, in accomplishing that, before such a revolution can be effected, the Senate, it is to be observed, must in the first place corrupt itself must next corrupt the state legislatures, must then corrupt the House of Representatives, and must finally corrupt the people at large. It is evident that the Senate must, first, must be first corrupted before it can attempt an establishment of tyranny. Without corrupting the state legislatures, it cannot prosecute the attempt because the periodic change of members would otherwise regenerate the whole body. Without exerting the means of corruption with equal success in the House of Representatives, the opposition of that co-equal branch of the government would inevitably defeat the attempt. And without corrupting the people themselves, a succession of a few representatives would speedily restore all things to their pristine order. Is there any man who can seriously persuade himself that the proposed Senate can, by any possible means within the compass of human address, 
arrive at the object of a lawless ambition through all these obstructions? Yes, if you remove one of them. If you get rid of the legislative control over them, because then you aggregate power at the federal level. And the legislatures of the various states become servants, not sovereigns. They become servants to a homogenized single federal unity. The federal Senate will never be able to transform itself by gradual usurpations into an independent and aristocratic body. When I was grew up in Idaho, the reaction to that would be my ass. <laughs> You know, um, the United States Constitution was amended in the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, and it provides the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years. If you wanted to do one thing to change the course of the United States um, repeal the 17th Amendment. Repeal the 17th Amendment. Overnight, the issue of whether or not the states have legislative authority and independent sovereignty would be reestablished uh, with one change. And it's never going to happen because the moneyed interests at this point are so far entrenched in this system and the political parties are so um, behind this manner of accomplishing the taxing and the gathering and the paying that Washington simply um, is off the leash and the leash came through the United States Senate. And the 17th Amendment cut the leash. And therefore, what we have is exactly the problem that, that, um, that we face today. Well, <clears throat> never question the wisdom of the folks that the Lord raised up. Holy men who he raised up uh, in order to establish a system and just realize, anytime you tinker with the system, any system that God put in place, you're going to yield, I was going to say, unexpected consequences. But that's just, you're going to apostatize from the purpose, and you deprive yourself of the intended blessing God hoped when he entrusted the system to you to bless you with. Um, that's the first point. There's one other point I want to talk about. When the United States of America was established, the United States um, had about 200 years of slavery that had been built into the, the core of the country 
when the United States was a colony and it had no right as a colony to resist the importation of uh, a slave class. And so when the United States of America gained independence from England, slavery was an existing economic fact that had been built into the, the society itself. It's interesting some of the debates that took place during the drafting of the Constitution because one of the theories, and it was, it was a, a, a real theory that bright men uh, considered. One of the theories was that it was impossible to produce the required educated and idle class. And by idle class, that means someone that doesn't have to go out and labor in the field with the strength of their body in order to uh, provide the means to feed and clothe and house themselves. You could not produce the required idle class unless you had slavery because there was no historical precedent for it. And they debated that. And the problem was that history um, suggested that that argument was an argument that could be, could be made and could be considered. So when independence was achieved, independence was achieved against the existing reality of slavery. Now, Washington, who was the only man considered to be uh, president of the United States, in fact, the office of the president was written, it was designed for one occupant, and that was George Washington. He was the indispensable man in, in creating this country. Washington was the one who presided over the Constitutional Convention and contributed almost nothing to the debates other than his presence. And when they reached an impasse, the way they solved the impasse was Washington indicated which side he favored. When they took it out to sell it to the public, the salesmanship that was done was that George Washington presided over this. Everyone trusted that man. Therefore, they adopted an office for that man and um, uh, he filled it for two terms, and then he resigned and he walked away. Something that everyone would respect by his mere example until it was necessary after FDR to amend the Constitution again to prevent that from uh, not being the example. Um, Washington, when he died, freed his slaves. He didn't do it while he was alive, but he did it in death. If everyone followed the example of Washington with time, there would have been no more slavery. Here's the problem, however. Since the institution had been imposed upon the United States as a colony, and since it, was, it represented wealth, it represented capital, however um, offensive to you it may be today, to say human beings are not capital. The economic reality was that slaves were capital and they represented an investment. So the question becomes, how do you extract yourself from the institution of slavery when you have an economic system in which people have invested capital in human slaves? How do you bring that to a conclusion? Because quite frankly, 
if all you do is um, terminate the practice, you would bankrupt the South. It is probable that um, the cotton gin alone made the end of slavery inevitable because it became a problem with the coming industrial revolution, one of the first edges of which was the cotton gin. The coming industrial revolution made it no longer necessary to have human bondage in order to accomplish it. It wasn't just uh, the ownership of African slaves in the South. It was um, indentured servitude in the North. Indentured servitude was a way of selling yourself or someone else into slavery for a period of time. And servitude was a, a, an economic means for producing goods and services. Well, how do you extract yourself? Um, Joseph Smith published when he was running for uh, the presidency of the United States General Smith's views of the powers and policy of the government of the United States out of Nauvoo, Illinois, in 1844. And this is an excerpt from his um, campaign. Petition also, this is his platform, petition also, ye goodly inhabitants of the slave states, your legislators to abolish slavery by the year 1850 or now, and save the abolitionists from reproach and ruin, infamy and shame. Pray Congress to pay every man a reasonable price for his slaves out of the surplus revenue arising from the sale of public lands and from the deduction of pay from the members of Congress. <laughs> Break off the shackles from the poor black man and hire them to labor like other human beings for an hour of virtuous liberty on earth is worth a whole eternity of bondage. Joseph Smith's proposal in 1844 was, here's how we end slavery. We buy them. We pay the purchase price. We purchase their freedom. Now think about that for a moment as a matter of economic reality. If you are a slave owner, and someone offers the fair price to you for your entire group of slaves, and you sell them into freedom, you now have capital, the capital that you spent buying them, and with your capital, you can hire them. And the people who were formerly uh, merely a commodity now become wage earners. But what happens if instead of doing as Joseph Smith proposed, you simply um, destroy the capital of the South by saying um, no more slavery, no more slavery. Instantly you bankrupt the South. Instantly you doom the freed slave to no longer having anyone who has the capital with which to employ them. Instantly, you leave the South in a position where, out of economic reality, what you do, since you own land, is you start a sharecropping system. 
in which the risk of crop failure falls upon those who can least afford to bear the risk of crop failure. That is the former slaves. What Joseph Smith proposed would not have required reconstruction. What Joseph Smith proposed would not have cost the Civil War. What Joseph Smith's proposal would have accomplished was the end of slavery. And what Joseph Smith's proposal would have accomplished with the end of slavery was the economic means by which the former slave could rise out of poverty through labor, because that's all anyone was doing at that time, through their own labor, and accomplish through their employment the dignity of holding a job and earning an income. But what we accomplished instead was another revolution that has constitutional implications. The deadliest enemy that the United States has ever faced is another American, and the Civil War proves it. There is no more effective and warlike people on earth than the Americans. <laughs> and when the Americans faced the Americans and blood was shed, um, we punished ourselves for slavery. And in the wake, in the wake of the Civil War, the Civil War amendments, if you take a look at what happened with the Civil War amendments, um, once again, it was a power shift. The way in which slavery was designed to end was gradually and in a way that made economic sense. The way in which it did end imposed another century of slavery upon the liberated slaves in the South as a matter of economic reality. It just was. You'd never have had share. I mean, the only thing they had was land. So what do you do? You let them farm the land. And then the crops that come off the land, you charge them, you take it, and you doom them to poverty. Well, if you look at what happened in connection with the Civil War, in contrast to the wisdom of what Joseph Smith suggested as an exit strategy to terminate the practice of slavery, you realize that the choice that we made between the two of them not only resulted in another century of problems following the Civil War and the freedom of the slaves and the bankruptcy of the Southern slave owners, it also resulted in oppression of the formerly uh, uh, the former slaves, because they, um, they succeeded into freedom in an, an economic environment in which it was impossible um, for them to make value out of what they had to offer, that is, their labor. Um, the amendments were designed to curtail the rights of the states and to impose upon the individual states the same due process of law through the 14th Amendment that we have in the federal government. You see, Congress, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion in the First Amendment. However, that didn't apply to the state legislatures, which is why 
Thomas Jefferson, as President of the United States, refused to acknowledge Thanksgiving as a national holiday because it was religious. And when he became governor of the state of Virginia, he not only celebrated Thanksgiving as a state holiday, but he also had a day of fasting, religious fasting, the day before. The state could not uh, have a state religion. I mean, the, the United States could not have a state religion, but the states could and did. The 14th Amendment ended that. What, what that literally meant at the beginning is that independent, sovereign, and equal states could experiment. You could have um, the state of Utah with a state religion called Mormonism or Latter-day Saintism. And you could have, like they did to the citizens of Massachusetts, a tax that was imposed by the state, collected by the state, and paid over to a church. You could do like um, the LDS church used to do with employees of ZCMI. That is, they had a payroll deduction for tithing. And, and they, they deducted it from if you're employed at ZCMI, and they, they, they paid it directly uh, to the church. Um, they could do that to all of you in the state of Utah if we still had what we had originally. And if you didn't like that, if you didn't like that, well, then you could go to Idaho. Because in Idaho, they worship the potato. <laughs> I know because I grew up there. Um, and if you found it detestable to worship a potato, you could go to Wyoming and worship a cowboy. But every state was intended to be a, um, an experiment in sovereignty and in freedom. And, and the aberrations that would appear, the strange concoctions that the states would create of themselves is just fine. Because the citizens of Vermont could say, I am sick of this government. And they could pack up and they could move to Rhode Island or they could move to Virginia or they could go to Ohio. And sooner or later, some state like Texas is doing now could say, come here. We're not going to tax you out of existence. We're going to issue you a sidearm when you come into the state. And we're going to let you shoot out of your car every road sign you see. And, and we'll replace them because we got oil money. And we can buy new road signs. Come to Texas. It's that guy on the Simpsons. Yeehaw! With the, with the, the two guns going off. And so people from Massachusetts can look down their nose at the folks in Texas. And they can say, you know, they're ne'er-do-wells. They're hicks. And the people in Texas can say, thank God we're in Texas <laughs> and not in Massadamchusetts. <laughs> we should be so diverse. We should be so dissimilar. We should be so non-uniform that growing out of the United States, there should be 
at this moment, 50 different experiments underway using the freedom that people have to choose to design for themselves the way in which they would like to be governed. And those 50 different ways will ultimately, some fail, some succeed, some turn into nirvana. And the states are going to look around and say, hey, that's good. And they're going to inform their own experiment in democracy by what they see working. And they're going to inform their own experiment in democracy by seeing what's failing and saying, well, that didn't work. I mean, look at that mess. Instead, what you have is a national uniformity in which when we make a mistake in economic policy, when we make a mistake in the way in which we proceed in trying to regulate and tax and govern, when we make a mistake in taking those who are most productive and, and confiscating money from them in order to subsidize behavior that we would really like to see end, when we make a mistake, we make a mistake on a grandiose scale. We make a mistake that is so threatening that it is possible to defeat the sovereignty of 50 states and to defeat the sovereignty of the entire union itself. And that was never, that was never what the Constitution set out to accomplish. The Constitution set out to accomplish as a byproduct of a system, your freedom, your rights, and the way in which they accomplished it has been tampered with. Therefore, I don't care if you've got scriptures as a Latter-day Saint that you can thump on and say, the Constitution was divinely inspired. So what? Because every time you tinker with it, every time you change it, if you're not informed by the same degree of inspiration as was evident in the original creation, uninspired men who do have a tendency to become tyrannical, uninspired men who do want to exercise control and compulsion and dominion. They can take any gift given by God to any of us, and they can pervert it into something in which savage uniformity oppresses the hearts and the souls of men and renders it incapable, incapable of securing for the benefit of you and your posterity the freedom which we find in Christ, the original revolutionary. Well, I've talked long enough. I was told by email, um, dude, I didn't know someone was a Highland Sea councilman. 
Um, I was told that I ought to allow some time for questions, and so there it is. Yes. So you alluded to this uh, a little bit ago. You said things which God establishes should not be tampered with. Can you draw some comparisons between um, the checks and balances that were set up um, for our political government and the, the original form of church government as established in Section 107? Yes, I could. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I get this is this is a more important story. But that's the answer to the question that you asked. Yes, I can. Um, there's a there's a kid on the team. The the kid on the team was literally he was batting. Zero, zero, 004 for the season, okay? And, and he told my daughter that he wished that she would teach him how to hit. And that was the practice before last practice. And in the, in the last practice, which was yesterday, I was watching him in the batter's box, and this is batting practice, and he didn't hit a single ball thrown to him. So I went over and I asked the coaches, can I, can I, work with this kid a little. Um, they said, it's the last game of the year. He's yours. You're welcome to him. So I took him over and I taught him one little technique um, where, where you stand next to the chain link fence, you put the bat, you put the bat against your belly button and against the fence, okay? And you get yourself that close. Then you have to swing the bat without hitting the fence, okay? What that does, if you can swing the bat without hitting the fence, if you've got a little eager, that forces the arms into a 45-degree angle. You can't accomplish that swing without 45-degree angle. You watch Major League Baseball players, they're all swinging at a 45-degree angle. Well, if you're, if you're pirouetting and you got your arms out, you go slower. And when you bring those arms in, you go faster. You rotate on the ball much faster. I mean, you can't hit a fastball in a Major League unless if this is called casting. That's what you do to catch fly fish. You cast. You, you keep it in a 45 and you bring it through and you bring it through fast, you can hit the ball. And if you're doing it right, then you don't have to even watch the, the bat. You just, you just take your hands and whatever the ball is, wherever the ball is, your hands line up with that and the barrel follows, okay? So this kid who's batting 004, this is the headline news. I'll leave his name out. He hit a single and got an RBI tonight. <laughs> That's all that matters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, assuming that's the extent of your answer to his question. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely could, but yeah. Sure. yeah. Think about how it is now. How was it originally? What was the check and balance system that was originally designated from the doctor? Joseph Smith never called a single member of the Quorum of the Twelve into the first presidency of the church. The Quorum of the Twelve was a traveling high council. Essentially, they were missionaries. First presidency of the church was a different operation. Um, all the congregations were locally controlled, locally elected, locally governed. The general authorities came to moderate the election. It was a congregationalist model. 
Um, common consent meant something. So they, were, they weren't giving out appointments from higher up. The local people know who or knew who the local people were, and they chose who they were. The general authority who came would moderate the ballot. They would, they would take nominations. Um, they'd usually get a slate. They'd vote for them. Whoever got the most votes, they would ask, will you sustain them? And if it wasn't unanimous, they'd go to number two. Will you sustain them? No, we won't do that. They'd go to number three. Will you sustain them? And if he got the votes and this was the guy everyone said, we have confidence in that guy, he became the stake president. He became the bishop. He became the whatever. Usually that guy would then ask for one of the other people that had gotten votes to be counselors. And usually, you know, in an act of magnanimity, everyone would say, oh, yeah, well, if he's in charge, I'm, I'm good with that too. And it was a, it was a local model. Um, at the time that Joseph Smith was killed, he was presiding over the high council in Nauvoo. Um, the way that the Doctrine and Covenants reads, you, you, um, you can have the president of the church be the president of the high council. Now, William Marks was present on a number of occasions, but it was Joseph Smith primarily who presided over the high council in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith presiding over the high council in Nauvoo regulated um, and held the church courts that went on um, in Nauvoo. Um, when he held a church court, he learned a lot of stuff about what was going on inside Nauvoo because people brought in their, their issues. Joseph Smith gave a talk that um, that can only be justified by what he was hearing presiding over the high council in Nauvoo. His intimates were the stake high council. His associates, the guys who knew him best during that time period, was the stake high council. Um, if a guy didn't show up for his high council court, or gal, there were gals too, um, the court wasn't held. If someone said, I need more time, they were given more time. If someone showed up and said, I'm sick, the high council wasn't held. Almost any reason would do to get the high council hearing continued. Um, Joseph Smith was killed. Quorum of the Twelve came back. Um, if you look at DNC section 107, and the reason, 107, yes, yeah, 107. A form a quorum equal in authority to the first presidency. If you read that, you get down to the equal in authority, equal in authority, you get to the high council. And um, high council forms a quorum equal in authority with the first presidency when you, and so, um, I mean, that succession moment, um, you know, the quorum of the 12 pulled it off. They they became the body triumphant. And then um, during the excommunication trial of Sidney Rigdon, over which uh, Marx presided, it was rather a kangaroo court. Um, Brigham Young was the one leading the charge, making the accusation, but he recognized he didn't have jurisdiction to get rid of, of Sidney Rigdon, so it had to be the high council that did that. And so in the... Rigdon trial in marked contrast to how high councils have been conducted with Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon said he didn't feel well and he didn't want the court held. And Brigham Young said, we're holding the court anyway. And the high council and the group went along with that. 
he said if he was, Brigham Young said that if, if Rigdon was well enough to attend a meeting earlier that day, he was well enough to attend his excommunication trial. And so we ought to proceed, and they proceeded in, in the absence of Sidney Rigdon. And then after he'd succeeded in getting Sidney Rigdon excommunicated, because he was considered the number one rival, uh, he said, well, you know, we may as well, we may as well hold the court and excommunicate. And he gave a list of people who were sympathizers with Rigdon because we're going to have to get rid of them sooner or later anyway. And so those guys didn't even get notice that there was going to be a high council court, and they got excommunicated too because they were guilt by association with. Um, you, you know, things changed. And when the Quorum of the Twelve became the presiding center of political authority, I mean, you look at, you look at what he did in calling in order, in order to, to, to move the high priests out of uh, the jurisdiction of the state high council and the state president, which was William Marks, who was also considered a rival to Brigham Young, he called every high priest uh, on a mission because when they're in the mission field, they were, um, they were under the jurisdiction of the 12. And so um, every high priest in Nauvoo was assigned a mission in the congressional district somewhere in the United States. Now, they didn't have to leave Nauvoo, but they were called to that. What that did was it, it changed the authority structure from the state president and the high council into the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, running the things, and, and I've read articles celebrating the um, reorganization and the re-empowerment of the 70 by Brigham Young, which was also another, another political move made at the time. I mean... The, the ripples from the succession crisis that occurred in 1844 um, is comparable in scope and magnitude to anything we've done in tinkering with the Constitution. And we don't have a congregational model today anymore. And we are savagely uniform from Buenos Aires to Tokyo. To, and you can feel comfortable no matter where you go that you're not going to miss the same Relief Society, Sunday School, Elders Quorum, and High Priest Lesson. And when we um, have our monthly whatever that thing is where we select some talk, Everyone's going to talk about that same some talk from somewhere, and they're all going to ruminate on what someone recently said. But, you know, what's a little bit of uniformity among friends? <laughs> but that wasn't what I came here to talk about. Heavens, you've derailed this constitutional affair. Yes. Oh, good, yeah. Joseph Smith said that if he found one flaw in the Constitution was there's a lack of an enforcement mechanism. When he went to go visit President Pettigrew, he said, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. If I do anything for you, we'll Missouri. He wasn't just expressing political reality, or he wasn't just expressing personal preference because he actually liked being president and he wanted to be elected again and he needed Missouri's vote. But according to legal scholars, he was also expressing the political reality, which is that until the 14th Amendment and, and subsequent incorporation, of the Bill of Rights against the states, the state governments could violate the Bill of Rights. That would only apply to the federal government. So right. Amendment implemented what Joseph thought was a fundamental, you know, corrected what Joseph saw as a fundamental flaw of the Constitution. 
Um, yes. At the expense, at the expense of a whole lot of other things. How would you have done it differently? You can, you can have cheese, but you only get cheese. And you get a whole lot of cheese. And you don't get any broccoli to go with it. I mean, in for a penny, in for a pound. What we're trying to guard against is tyranny. And what we have is either separate sovereign experiments in which some things may go awry, and that'll inform forever in the future whether or not the state of Missouri ever again gets one penny of patronage or one bit of help from an entire community that has been alienated, an entire growing body of politically active and um, wealth-producing and successful uh, Latter-day Saints um, by their failure to behave reasonably. Or we can just homogenize everything and say, now the president can... Um, you know, there was an incident that happened during, uh, um, I think it was the Korean War, when President Truman sent the National Guard in to operate a steel mill during a, a, a strike by the steel. Yeah, and, and a federal judge sent him home. And the federal judge sent him home because he said the president has, doesn't have the authority to do that. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. What? Why do you think uh, many general authorities in the past have expressed have, have, have expressed that President Lincoln was inspired? No, I'm certain he was inspired. <laughs> just no no question about. Um, Did you say he wasn't inspired? Was yeah, he was certainly inspired. He was he was a man of fire. Well. <laughs> Therein lies the rub. <laughs> look, look, the, the, the problem is this. Um, what in the end, what in the end do you prize the most? Do you prize all of the risks, all of the responsibilities, all of the potential for failure, all of the individual accountability. I mean, I read you the scripture a minute ago. What was the purpose of the Constitution? It was to make you free so that you can exercise moral agency and you get the opportunity to succeed or fail. The purpose of the Constitution is to set you in a position in which it is possible for you to accomplish either one so that you, you become accountable. Not someone back in Washington. Not someone to whom you have surrendered your choice. Not someone else to run your life. Not someone else to tell you the comings and the goings, the whens and the wheres and the whys. You, the Constitution, was designed to accomplish. You become morally accountable because you are the agent that gets to choose. And what the original structure did, and you can say, well, it was errant. It was excessive. There's just too much freedom there. 
It was just, it, it was licentious. I mean, for goodness sake, look at what happened. Um, slavery was doomed, period. Slavery was doomed. If the federal government didn't do anything about it, it would come to an end. And the way in which it would have come to an end would have probably not involved the loss of so many lives and so much treasure, nor would it have propelled the country into a circumstance in which for the next century, the former slaves paid a very dear price for the way in which they exited from the institution of slavery. Um, you know, Lincoln was a Republican, and the Republicans um, wanted to end the twin relics of barbarism I mean, when he got done with, um, with uh, the Civil War, I mean, he probably would have sent Johnson's army out a lot earlier. Look, um, everyone is a mixed blessing. Every leadership dilemma is an opportunity for um, wisdom and prudence or excess and failure. When you, when you consider the, the leaders that we've had in this country, there's no question that George Washington fashioned a way of wielding power that was selfless and self-centered. I mean, not self-centered. He, he was interested in being a servant to the people. When Jefferson became president, he's the guy that invented the embargo. He was looking for a peaceful way to, to obtain agreement using peacefully coercive means. Um, the way in which the founding fathers proceeded was an extraordinary balance of prudence and wisdom, caution and daring, and, and they proceeded through a landmine field without blowing themselves up. Since that time, I mean, ask yourself this question. Let's assume that we had Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. Let's assume we have all those guys at the time of the Civil War. And we say, it's got to end and it's got to end now. Do you really think the route that those men would have taken was the same one that Lincoln chose? No, it wouldn't. Kill 787,000 people. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Americans? Look, um, Joseph Smith had a way out. It was part of his platform when he ran for the presidency. I mean, if Joseph was inspired in a prophet and he chose a means diametrically opposed to the one that Lincoln chose, and you say, well, one looks for a way to accomplish it by peaceful means, preserving life, preserving property, and creating freedom, and the other one managed to accomplish it by brute force, by the, the, the deaths of three-quarters of a million Americans, and by the impoverishment of those whose capital was lost because they had to pay just compensation if they wanted to take your property. And at the time, whether you like it or not, the definition was property. Um, yeah, I agree. 
Lincoln was inspired. Yes. This group here, I would presume, agrees with you wholeheartedly that the Constitution. I don't know this group, so I'm making a blanket statement here. Just okay. Generic to the generalities, and that that inspired document has all but been destroyed. Sort of hanging by a thread, if that thread has not already been hacked on. Yeah. My question for you, I guess, is in the short term, one to three years, how do you see things playing out? And then a little bit longer view, how do you see things playing out with most of the population, including our LDS brethren, uh, as a population, uh, are apparently mostly asleep and very content. We, we, have a, we have a really fortunate confluence of scandal right now back in Washington. Sure. We, are, we are blessed and we are protected, not by the wisdom of our leaders, but by the foolishness and vanity of our leaders. And we have now potentially, because of the seriousness of the groups that have been offended, we have potentially a three-year lame duck president, um, which, would be, um, which would be highly useful because the aggregation of executive power is something that, I mean, Nixon is the poster boy for the left to say, look at that, look at that excess. Um, when, in fact, um, Nixon doesn't even hold a candle to the administration that we've got now. Yeah, yeah. Nixon really was. He was a Quaker. Do they have choirs? <laughs> yeah. But look, I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this, this uh, confluence of... Um, of scandal will um, will hamstring because the, the, even still, what we've got is a balance between the egos of various uh, political offices back there, and that was one of the purposes of the Constitution was to establish a way in which you could take politically ambitious people and put them back there and let them fight with one another, so they'll leave us alone. And what I'm hoping is we've got enough scandal going and enough. Egos back there right now that they'll they'll brutalize one another and leave us alone. It's like Mark Twain said that no one is safe in their life or property while the legislature's in session. And you know they may be in session, but hopefully what they're fighting over is one another. There was another hand here somewhere. Yeah. I had a, a question when Supreme Court Judge Roberts made his decision on the unaffordable health care. Yeah. Um, he, somebody said, I heard him say that he was wise in the rest of his statement where he was saying how the states are sovereign and, and the Constitution gives the states the right to stand up against stuff like that. And now, did you, remember, did you hear anybody else hear that? And, and the states aren't, um, the governors and the legisl state legislators who have taken the oath to uphold the Constitution and, and are apparently aren't doing it from the state view against yeah. the government for the state rights. So. Here, here's, the, here's the um, horns of the dilemma I have. I'm a member of the bar of the United States Supreme Court, and I'm not supposed to um, say anything that would um, uh, reflect uh, dishonor or discredit on a member of the United States Supreme Court. So let me just say not about Justice Roberts, the Honorable 
Chief Justice Roberts, but about the opinion, that the opinion is way too cute by half. It makes no sense at all to me. Quite frankly, I believe it was motivated by the notion that if he turned it into a tax, he could write the majority opinion, and the tax would be so offensive that the upcoming election would be swung against Obama and that the act would be repealed. And I, I think it was, it was, it was the, the, the opinion was an attempt to engage from the bench in determining the fortunes in the next election. And it didn't work. And what we, what we have, you can't go to the legislative history of the enactment of Obamacare and find anyone, you can't find anyone that advocated it as a tax. That wasn't the purpose. In fact, it, it's, it's a damnable lie to stand up in oral argument as the Solicitor General of the United States did and advocate that it that is an act that can be upheld because of the taxing power of the country. If the country never sought to invoke the taxing power as the basis upon which to adopt the act, and and I I think Roberts is um, Roberts' opinion is um, just too cute, and it's a lesson in. Um, the disadvantages of trying to be from the bench uh, a uh, a politician uh, it, it it's a bad opinion in my view. By the way, I understand this might go up on the web, and one of the things I like to do is uh, when when anything is going out there is to um, say things like um, jihad and we're going to avenge Waco and, and <laughs> Um, Muslim Muslim Brotherhood and 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 Homeland Security. You go screw yourself. I have I have a client who's in Europe right now, and we talk um, on occasion. And whenever I'm talking to him. I would say, okay, now I got to do something because this is international. I got to do something for our folks at Homeland Security. And I, I go through the list of taboo words. Yeah, you have it. You have some information that's compiled together on Joseph Smith and his platform and then slavery and all that. Yeah, um, actually, if you just go Google the um, Joseph Smith presidential platform, you'll, you'll kick up a copy of the platform and an article in Mormon Dialogue magazine that deals with it. Um, and it's not a bad article. Um, and the platform is, is right there. But just, just Google that and you'll find a Mormon Dialogue uh, article on that. Do you have stuff that you've written from your take and your opinion? Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't think that I brushed up against that, but I'm getting ready to take aim at the um, succession crisis, I think. And then the second part is, as Tom asked the question, is the first year to three years? Yeah. His second 
part of this question was where do you think it's going from three years after that, but you didn't get to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for that part. And I'm thinking about this. Me too. Well, you know. Um. <laughs> DHS, go screw yourself. You know. When the Lord says, my peace I give unto you, he coupled that with, not as the world gives, give I unto you. You know, in this world, you get to enjoy um, all of the benefits of a telestial atmosphere. You know... Um, you, you take a look. Right now, perhaps for one of the first times in history, you have a, you have a politicized economy. You have a politicized stock market. Um, Yeah, I've spent three weeks in trial against a bank. Um, I was in a closing arguments in a case uh, earlier today. That's why I'm dressed this way. I wouldn't normally come like this. Um, but I was, you know, seeing one of the honors downtown. Look, all, all I can say is um, there's a, there was a, Taylor Swift concert my daughter went to, and there's a, that, that song about trouble, trouble, trouble. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like Simon Garfunkel said, the words of the prophets are written on the subway. Well, sometimes they're written by country western singers. Uh, we're in trouble, you know, that's obvious, don't you think? So we're morally bankrupt, we're about ready to get joust off our horse. So. Well, th there's always the possibility that we repent. <laughs> but the agenda suggested by the Book of Mormon is that that's unlikely. There was something, someone back here? What? Uh, you talked as entitled constitutional processes, so what's the consequence? What's going to be my question of the constitutional processes? You lose the blessings. What the Lord intended to confer upon you and what you might have had, you lose. And therefore, what, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the responsibility of God. He's not doing this to you. He gave you as a gift an opportunity. What you do with the opportunity then is up to you. And... Um, when, when you walk away from and you decide that um, you would disprefer to preserve for any reason what it was that God had uh, intended to bless you with, you can't, you can't obtain the blessing without conforming to the law upon which the blessing is predicated. And that was established before the foundation of the world. And if you decide that you 
will not conform to the condition upon which the blessing is predicated, then you get to enjoy the absence of the blessing. And you get to mill around in darkness because blessings confer light. It's why they call it enlightenment. That's why the founding fathers were enlightened because they were gathering to themselves um, light. And when you throw that away, then what you gather is less of that and darkness. But you'd be surprised how long you can run into the darkness hyping up the flashlight and the pen light and the, and the sparks from your tap shoes on the pavement until it ends. Yeah. So, as you have been said that the elders of Israel would be the ones that pull the Constitution, how do you see that when we're playing out? Uh, Ezra Taft Benson is uh, making that statement in reliance upon uh, Joseph Smith's comment about the uh, elders of Israel, if the Constitution is to be saved, uh, it'll be the elders of Israel that did it, and a comment about the Constitution lasting on into the millennium. Um, my view is that if the elders of Israel have a role in preserving the Constitution, that role is not by legislating. That role is by converting people to the truth because the Constitution is designed to govern a moral people and is utterly unfit to govern any other kind of people. Therefore, if you want to fix what's wrong at the constitutional level, you need to go out and you need to preach the gospel and convert people and change their hearts. Because right now, the hearts of this nation, the hearts of this people are harder, are more strident, are more resistant to. I mean, look, what's the tool? Gentleness and meekness and persuasion, that's the tool. That's what you get to use. Why do you think the Savior took a beating and forgave him? I mean, he shows you the tool. Um, you know, he, he revolutionized the world ultimately simply because he was unwilling to return to brutality anything other than the kindness and the forgiveness that broke the hearts of anyone who hears the story of who this man was. Elders of Israel need to convert the people. Glenn Beck's an elder. Yeah. Change the hearts of the people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Nullification. Um, Alien Dissedition Acts came along. Virginia resolved in 1799. Now we have a pretty big movement across the states now, the nullification movement. And... Um, they didn't explicitly write that into the Constitution, but I think implicitly it was there. Can you tell us what they thought about nullification? Well, the, the, the pragmatics of it are um, you need enough people with the right sentiment. Right now, 
right now you have a legitimate effort to split Colorado into two states because of political differences uh, and and rights issues. Um, there's talk about the same thing in parts of California. Um, Texas was a sovereign nation before it joined the United States, and it it has the right to split into separate states. And if it were to do so, it would probably do so in order to increase the number of senators um, that go to... Uh, look, uh, I don't think there's going to be anything dramatic uh, succeed politically until you get enough people that are no longer interested in the Kardashians and become interested in um, the erosion of their freedom. And that's a tall challenge. Um, I've gone longer than I ever thought I would. Um, we need to wrap it up. Yeah? Just one quick question. I, I hope you wouldn't mind indulging uh, what you read about Joseph Smith. Um, if I could quote it. An hour of virtu virtuous liberty on earth is worth a whole eternity of bondage. Mm -hmm. Just wondering about your commentary on that, that concept. We have this really unique opportunity in mortality. This is the only place where you can come and you can bleed and you can die and you can sacrifice for a cause. Cowardice is unbecoming anyone who would try to lay hold on the riches of heaven. Because down here in this dark well, you have an opportunity to prove who you are. You have an opportunity to prove what you are. And you don't prove that you're anything worth preserving on into eternity if you don't live with nobility. And I don't care who it is that's pressuring you or what means they think they can employ. That statement I regret that I have but one life to give for my country is not the language of a slave. It's not even the language of a captive. There's a man who's free indeed, even though he's about to be killed. You know, we lack the fortitude. We lack the self-confidence to hold on to our freedom. You surrender, you surrender to fashion, you surrender to peer pressure, you surrender to those people that you think are respected members of society, you surrender. But you don't have to. Freedom is still possible in this state. Now, hey, um, here's the problem. In addition to every other complication about coming tonight, my uh, nephew got home from his mission in Chile and uh, there's a shindig going on that's starting in 10 minutes in Sandy, Utah. And so I really got to get out of here.
We hope you enjoyed this lecture by Denver Snuffer. For more information, including complete transcripts of all of Denver's lectures, please visit restorationarchives.com. If you would like to hear more great lectures like this one, please take a moment to subscribe. Just search for Light and Truth in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.